Welcome to Cal and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm off guard, apparently. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still ends our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the movie Poltergeist. <laughs> looks just like the one next to it and the one next to that and the one next to that a young couple live in it give Ken a kiss <laughs> you are so with their three children <laughs> and something more Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show, you know, since the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there, which you can hear very soon, I'm sure. We're going to be talking about Bay of Blood. Uh, I don't know about how soon, because I don't want to watch a movie called Bay of Blood. Oh, you didn't watch it yet. Okay, well, well this is going to be awkward. You know, Dave, we've had a quite... A journey to get to where we are here today. If, if this is your first time listening to our show, you must know that we have an epic, deep, and rich fiction that we provide oh, to our listeners each rich. and every week. There has been highs, there's been lows, there's been three act structures, heroes' journeys, you wow. know, all of these things that you would expect. Technical jargon. Yeah. That you would expect from a well written, well researched, well drawn out oh, yeah. narrative. We put so much energy into this thing. Mm -hmm. I think I think listeners would be surprised at the amount of energy we put into the story. <laughs> Um, I think that they wouldn't be. So the <laughs> if if you need getting caught up here in this season, where we've been talking about the films of 1982, we started the, the year off by owning our own arcade, and then swooping in and stealing it from us was DDS DDS, who uh, won the rights to our arcade in a boxing match, and now has been pursuing us as we've been trying to escape her clutches. We found our seclusion here in a cabin in the woods. But Dave, uh, kind of what we discovered here last week is we we're saying goodbye to Sarah in her uh, her guest spot. Is that the cabin seems to be like transmorphing or transmogrifying mm. in some way? It, it yes. feels like it's Calvin and Hobbes. Nice. And have you been noticing things that has been moving and shifting places? Yes, mattresses have been yes. swirling around. I didn't even know we had mattresses, but you know, he kept telling me I just sleep on the floor, and now this fucking thing's swinging the You're air. Sleep, like sleeping in that bed of leaves, yep. jerk. And uh, Kyle, is that a, your creepy clown doll? Because <laughs> that's disgusting. I'll be cold and dead in the ground before I get rid of my creepy clown doll. Uh, it was something to keep an, an eye of. I'm sure that will come back to be important by the end to of haunt today's us? episode. To haunt us. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Um, so, Like a ghost just story? On, like a poltergeist? We do need to do a couple of things here before we jump into our history with this film. Number one, there was one thing we forgot to do last week, which was, with the thing, we of course rated it, put it onto our master list for 1982. But because it is part of the top 250 of Letterboxd, we have that list going on as well. Oh, I forgot. So you should just figure out where we want to put it. So, yeah, so we both gave it a 4.5, and that is going to tie with... Four other films in this top 250. Okay. From bottom to top, that is City Lights, The Iron Giant, The Apartment, Yee Yee. So where would you put the thing inside of those four? I love how comparable they all are. It's great. It's very easy to draw comparisons. <laughs> didn't you think about when we were watching the thing, it's like, you know what this reminds me of? Yee Yee. Yeah, like, I think it, uh, <laughs> it's, mm, 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 like in the, I'm getting hints of Yee Yee like in the a, thing. A true life experience of Antarctica. I would put it in the middle. Above Iron Giant, below Apartments? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to agree, actually. I'm not going to put up too much of a fight here. I definitely would put it above City Lights. Like, I know you really liked Iron Giant, but I... I, I do, but I like I'm going to say it's just as, like, as iconic, I would probably put the thing above yeah. it. I just love the apartment. I think the apartment is a great apartment's great amazing. Movie, so. And Yi took us by surprise, because how something yeah. that slow and deliberate could uh, keep your attention is mm. fascinating. I know. Just some kid taking Polaroids. Like, you would think, who cares? But 
Uh, all right. Anyway, so in our top 250 list here, at least, the thing is going to go into our number five position below the apartment above the Iron Giant. All humans looks like things to me. The other thing I, th I think we should mention, this has been a few weeks ago now as, as of this recording, but uh, Angela Lansbury passed away. And I thought we should just mention that since how she has been in uh, at least one movie that we have talked, two movies, actually. She's been in two movies that we've talked about on this show. Bedknobs and Broom 6 and The Last Unicorn. She was a voice in oh, The Last right, Unicorn. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. So, Mr. Hates Every Celebrity, what do you have to say? <laughs> yeah, she's dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Uh, iconic. She seemed like a nice lady. I saw when she passed away in one of the magazine obits on Apple News. Mm -hmm. I saw that for the first time, a picture of her young self when she debuted. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she was quite attractive. And then she immediately became 60. It's a fascinating... A it is very <laughs> weird. It's like a, a quick turnaround from like her first appearances in the 40s. And then even by like the late 50s, it's like, oh, yeah, you're Angela Lansbury. <laughs> <laughs> you just look like that for the rest of your career. Yeah, she had a big career. She's in a bunch of stuff that Kyle loves. Definitely might. Like if you want early Angela Lansbury, definitely seek out Gaslight. She has a supporting performance in there. Uh, and the picture of Dorian Gray. Two great performances in kind of early black and white films that are phenomenal. And I think that more people should go and watch them. And if you're a musical theater fan, find you can find it very easily online. The 1982, interesting that we're in here, 1982, Sweeney Todd, uh, the, the pro shot, the professional shot to Sweeney Todd from stage. It's a great uh, encapsulation of what that show would look like if you went and saw it on Broadway. Fanboy. Such a fanboy. What was the word you taught yeah, yeah. me? Stan? Are you standing right now? <laughs> yes. They, they've slowly learning <laughs> internet speak from 10 years ago. Like, Why is like... <laughs> it's been around for so long. Uh, oh, that song is much older than 10 years, but mm -hmm. I just can't believe that became a reference point. That's Devin Sawa, actually. It is Devin Sawa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remember when he was a thing? Nope. I do. My, my uh, nope. high school nope. bedroom wall remembers. Nope. I, I, I thought you were going to go dirtier than that. I'm glad I we, yeah, we kept it. We kept it in your pants. Kyle should put on his pants. So we're talking about Poltergeist here this week. And this is going to kind of probably finish off our discussion of horror films Thank of 1982. There's a couple of people I think we should talk about in regards to this film. One that's kind of fun that we'll start with, which is Craig T. Nelson, who is kind of a, a supporting character in this movie. I wouldn't say he's the star of this movie, but he's definitely a supporting actor. And if you grew up in the 80s, like Dave and I did, you definitely know him from a certain sitcom that ran forever, he's it coach. seemed like. But yeah, he's coach. Yeah. What do you have to say about Craig T. Nelson? I don't, I don't have much to say about him. Coach was mm -hmm. a huge, uh, just before our time, I think that's the late 80s, isn't it? Or did it go into the 90s? I don't remember. Oh. That's a big show. Well, let's find Seven out, Dave. seasons, let's I think. Eight it seasons? always feels like it ran longer than it actually did, but it's because it was in syndication. I was so say, I just saw we watched a lot of reruns. For so long. Yeah. I was more of a Perfect Strangers guy. Me too. Right? I love Perfect Strangers. Valky Bartok. It does not hold up, by the way. Go and try and watch. I'm like, ooh, this is... Uh, so it ran for nine seasons, Holy Dave. Shit. So it would have oh, gone wow. into the 90s. Oh, wow. I would... Honestly, Dave, gun to my head, I would have totally misremembered when it ran from it debuted in 1989 oh wow and ran until 1996 holy shit so it was actually new episodes were being made while friends was on yeah. that doesn't even seem possible yeah. so clearly we didn't watch it yeah obviously sometimes watched a couple episodes here and there no it wasn't that big i, I you know what was on remember it. lunchtime when i was in high school more than coach wings i've seen oh, episodes yeah. of wings Isn't that oh weird? yeah wings is such a bizarre show because it actually technically is it's not a spin-off but is in the same universe as cheers and fraser because characters would show up on each other's shows right. they would do crossovers but like stephen weber went on to have a fairly decent like supporting actor career he actually does a lot of audiobooks now really enough and he's really great um, audiobook narrators and then Tony Shalhoub like won seven <laughs> Emmys for Monk after he was on Wings for like That's good years and years. Hey, you yeah, don't yeah. talk about character actors. By the way, just to go back to Coach here for a moment, just get a load of this, Dave. This is like <laughs> such a different era of television. All right. Debuts in 89. There's 13 episodes in its first season, which means it was a mid-season replacement because it didn't have a full 20 episodes. But in season six, it had 27 original episodes that was made wow. <laughs> for season six, where it was the sixth high rated show on television in the united in north, states in north america at the time mm -hmm. 
Amazing. This is bonkers. Second in Canada to Degrassi Jr. Anyways, that's all I know about Craig T. Nelson and the fact that he's the voice of Mr. Incredible. I was going to say, I wikied him and then he's Mr. Incredible. I'm like, of course he is. I never thought Mm -hmm. about it, but of course he is. So that's my favorite role of his. So, um, shout out to Craig T. Nelson, who, by the way, also, they have nothing to do with each other. But being the wrestling fan that I am, he has this weird resemblance to Jesse Ventura. If you Mm. put them side by side, Mm. they've kind of aged to look like the same person, Mm. weirdly enough. If he was wearing a bandana all the time. How about Toby Hooper? Do you know anything about Toby Hooper? Who's the director of this film? I googled it and I regret it. It's fucking disgusting. (laughs) Yeah. I read the synopsis for Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I almost threw up just reading the three sentence Dave, plot it line. is called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What do you think is going to happen in that movie? Why does it exist and why do people like it? Grindhouse, Dave. You want to see the grind, the griminess of a man running after you with a chainsaw. I don't know. It's a man and There's it's always a woman. About that. Yeah. It's always a woman being tortured. Actually, you know what I had? This is, this is a true story. A friend brought a new girlfriend over who I had not met before. And so we were having a conversation yes. and she mentioned how much she loved horror movies. And I asked her, well, why do I like horror movies so much? Because I was just interested. And she was like, because I deal a lot in my real life with like anxiety and frustration and, and depression and stuff like that. Horror movies are this great way to experience that with, with me not having to be the center of attention. I can actually experience it through another person. And it's a safe way to experience anxiety and fear in a safe space because I know it's all going to ha- uh, end up good for me. Maybe not the character, but for me, it was therapeutic for her. That's the word that she used. Do you think our listeners can hear the face I'm making right now? Dave, just because you don't have that experience does not mean other people don't have that experience. How? <laughs> so if I am the survivor of a horrific accident, it would be great for me to watch movies about horrific accidents to get over the idea that I've had an, a terrible experience that, with that. One. I don't know, but you've also heard the the idea of someone like just wanting to have a good cry. They watch sad movies so that they can actually cry along with it. Like that is a thing people do. Why? Oh my god, Dave! Come on, come I, on! I, I cry in movies, but I don't look for movies to cry in. Hmm. Well, that's what some people do. That's what they. That's what they're looking for. They want something depressing and sad so that they can experience that emotion. They can have that catharsis instead of just like, I'm going to think about something sad for a while and try and push out a tear. I know I offend everybody when I speak, Kyle, but I hate October now. Thank you. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. At least this year we've watched, you know, the thing, we'll talk about this movie, but just this idea of like Texas Chainsaw Man, like stuff that I hate. Well, this it's is divorced from that. I'm just saying in general horror sick. movies. Made it about halfway through the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm like, this is not for me. I'm not going to enjoy this. <laughs> well, because you weren't in a theater. I think you, this is, this is going back to even last week. I think you have a problem getting past lit- the literal text of what is happening in the movie. Because you don't like to go into subtext a lot. You will go into subtext occasionally, but I think you have a hard time. It's like, well, I don't like what is physically happening in this movie and I can't get past it to look at what it's trying to communicate. Yeah. At least that's my interpretation sometimes. Yeah, sure. It's a visual medium. So if it looks like sure. shit, why would I sit in it? Uh-huh. Seriously. Well, sometimes you have to eat your vegetables, Dave, is what I'm trying to <laughs> say. Vegetables. I like the taste of broccoli, but it's good for There's you. There's plenty of nutrients in good, good looking movies too. And also it's not just about cinematography and budget. It's about, I mean, you and I know this. We've been spending three years talking about this, Kyle. There's a difference between good and bad movies, and it's not about the budget. No, I know that. But I'm just saying, too, like, if I'm just going to use an analogy to a movie that doesn't exist, but it's like the fact that a plot in a movie that deals with someone with a knife killing someone, that by default does not make it a bad movie. It is how the movie communicates that message and shows how that is happening. That's fine. Um, I think sometimes you have a hard time. It's like, well, it's someone who's killing someone, so I'm not going to like this movie. Well, I would say that if the movie is sold or advertised at something where someone's going to chase after someone with a knife, uh, yeah, why would I go into that movie unless I'm being forced by my podcast partner to watch it? As far as reading subtext, I think I was trying to get to the point last week that it's something that happens after, like on a second rewatching. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't watch Fight Club or The Matrix and leave the theater going, oh, wow, what a great metaphysical representation of, you know, the political strife we have as males. Fuck off. Like you just watch the movie. And then after you're kind of having a discussion, maybe a week later, you go watch it a second time, you start picking apart if you're going to be that person but i can agree to that to a point but i also watch films i've had lots of people push back uh, at at me on this you're not the only person but i have a hard time watching films without bringing in 
my own past experience. So if something like registers something in my head, I'm like, oh, I've had something similar like this happen to me before. No, that's okay. Then I have to like relate it to that thing that's happened to me in the past. I can't just be like, well, the movie's a movie and nothing from the outside world can enter in no, to no. the world of the movie. I don't mean that. I, I mean, we have to rely on our past experiences to interpret any, mm-hmm. right, uh, stimulus. Time to get back on track. I don't have a lot of history with Toby Hooper, I have to tell you. I said, like, I watched half of Chainsaw Massacre. I've seen one other movie of his that nobody has ever heard of called Body Bags. Gross. Um, it was a made-for-TV movie that him, John Carpenter, and another horror director that I'm forgetting now, each of the short story mm. <laughs> in this, like, 90-minute okay. movie. No one's ever seen that movie, but I've watched it. And that's the only other thing from Toby Hooper that I've ever seen. How'd that go for you? Um, it was fine. I think it's, it's not a, I don't know. I don't remember a lot from it, to be honest with you. Weirdly enough though, if you read up about people who've interacted with Toby Hooper, he passed away, I think in 2017, unlike what you might expect from someone who makes like wild, outrageous, like kind of grindhouse movies. Apparently he was a very quiet and reserved man. Like he was like very polite and like, like very like to himself sort of thing. So I, I don't find that surprising at all. Really? Yeah. Don't you think you'd be like a Tarantino and be like, yeah, I love like the grindhouse. Tarantino's like, like, that's like, uh, Tarantino's basically how I envision a coke addict. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people that have, um, an interest in very extreme things have a different outward, uh, appearance, especially in our society, because you will get judged Mm. so fast if you're walking around with like fake gore and people wearing other people's faces on your face. You don't do that in public. Mm. So you keep that to yourself. So being outwardly well, reserved. thanks to Obama. So. Well, I'm just saying. And then you go out and when you're given free license to let the demons out, you make a movie about a bunch of people murdering other people. It's just like how I can't ever talk about my love of Devon Sawa because people <laughs> look at you weird. I'm looking at you weird. Yeah. And anyone <laughs> born after 1995 is like, who? <laughs> How would this film, have you ever seen Poltergeist before? No, I mean, it's pretty iconic. You must know of Poltergeist, right. though. It's iconic. I know there's a TV. I know there's a little girl in it. I know what mm-hmm. a poltergeist is. I'm presuming it existed before the film. I don't know if this film coined yes. the idea of a poltergeist. No. And that's about it. As you know, I, I'm not a big uh, chaser of 80s horror genre films. Uh, although, you mm-hmm. know, I've learned that I apparently watch a lot of horror m- films in right. a wider a spectrum. So this was never on a list uh, so this will be the first time I've seen it. So technically, I have watched this movie before, but I have to be honest, like my last time I watched this, or the first time I watched this, it was in university, at a party, I was very drunk, and I fell asleep about 10 minutes in. So, so like, I I remember the first bit, like the setup in like the first 10 minutes, and then I remember coming awake as the credits were rolling. Mm. So that is basically my experience with Poltergeist. I've never really sat down and watched this movie from start to finish. So this will kind of be my first time watching this. All right. Uh, I'm looking forward to it here, though. So let's do this, Dave. Let's go and take a little bit of a break. Thanks some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about Poltergeist. I know it's the recurring joke, Dave, but like if you were ever in a situation where like furniture was moving by itself, a portal to a different dimension seemingly was opening up in your closet. Like how, how quickly would you yourself be moving out of that, that place? I'd like to think that I would spend a lot of time trying to just figure out what's going on. As, like, I just want to know if I can solve it by myself, Kyle, because the most important thing for me is home ownership and property. And it's just <laughs> so, so frustrating. As a good capitalist, I'd like to make sure that yeah. I understand my property. I mean, that's my house, Kyle. That's my house. Uh-huh. So if they kidnap my kid, fine, but I got to figure out what's going to happen to my house. So important. Mm -hmm. Well, I already know what you think about this movie. So um, (laughs) I'll just say, (laughs) Kyle and Dave, First Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, I get to tell you about the Edmonton Community Foundation. This 
is a foundation that acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on making ends meet in Edmonton. You can learn more by going to ecfoundation.org. Here's one thing I will guarantee you. All right, they're not. This is not in the ad copy. This is me speaking from the hip. Okay. The Edmonton, the Edmonton Community Foundation. If they were helping you support your community, there ain't no poltergeist. There ain't no ghost. They're gonna make, do their due diligence. They're not gonna. They're not gonna build on top of a cemetery. What they is know. going on right now? They know. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, let's let's change the tone to something a little bit more serious, Kyle. Because I got to talk to you about park power. Listen, mm-hmm. Kyle, everybody here in Calgary knows this, but winter is coming. And frankly, I think it's actually here, which sucks. Energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now is a great time for listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure they're on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no obligations comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy. Kyle, how easy was it? It was uh, going online, putting in some information, and they handle everything. They even call your previous supplier and do all the uh, cancellations and things for you, which I thought was great. This is how ads get you. Kyle is a proud member of the uh, Park Power community now. And you can feel good knowing you are supporting a local business, Kyle. Do you feel good about that? I think so. I am. I've actually started wearing a bow tie, just like Chris Kozowski. And helping to give back to our communities with your utilities bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. All right, Dave. So we have sat down and watched Poltergeist basically both for the very first time. So let's say this, Dave. Let's say that we have decided just for fun one Sunday afternoon. That's what we do. We've both taken a drive out to cottage country. We are doing an open house. We're going to see an open house and we walk in, but like the chandelier is upside down. The chairs are moving all over the place. And a young kid, blonde hair, turns to us, like cranes her head and is like, pushes out a VHS copy of, of Poltergeist towards us. And is like, what is this about? I'll and just she, and what, punch you her in the face and run. Punch her right <laughs> square in the jaw. Mm-hmm. What is Poltergeist about? A family has started a life in a new house where a Mm -hmm. girl can apparently speak to ghosts, and this ghost is not happy about them living in this house. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And then the big old spook happens. (laughs) So that's what happens. Honestly, I'd say it's a medium-sized spook. Dave. Yes. David. (laughs) Wow. David Yun. Wow. Again, super formal. Yeah. David Cornelius Yun. I have no idea what your middle name is. What were your thoughts on Poltergeist? I think the first disclaimer is that as someone with epilepsy, I watched oh, this yes. on a fairly small screen mm-hmm. <laughs> on my computer. So I, could, I had to text Dave and yeah. like, I don't know if you can watch this movie. I, I was like 15 minutes in and I was even I was like, whoa, there's a lot of strobing that's going on in this movie. Yeah, they should just call this movie the strobing. So I had it on a smaller screen inset mm-hmm. onto my larger screen so I could look away if I got yeah, uh, yeah. a little eye flutter going. But it's not a bad movie i think you know we've kind of brought up this conspiracy or this theory about who directed this film and yeah we're gonna we're gonna get into that way more in in the back half but yes yeah i'm introducing it just because i felt like there are two tones in this film it's a reasonably interesting movie but i couldn't really like it's not the thing i didn't really get into it as a whole project. Mm-hmm. And every time I kind of uh, got invested in some of the creepiness, it felt a little cartoonish sometimes. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff like, how, why was the tree in this movie? Well, yeah, that pause says everything. I, I, the, the tree does not bother me, actually. There's another part that actually bothers me more, which is what like the whole movie is hinged on. The Exorcist? Uh, which is the television set. Oh, yeah. Why are they in the television? What's that about? Never used again. Yeah, so weird. Like you got some Spielberg-esque, <laughs> beautiful lighting, yes. cinematography, staging, camera work. And then at the end, it's like a Sam Raimi film and fucking plastic 
graves are jumping out of the ground and dead skeletons. Like it's just, it's very inconsistent for me. But I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought everybody was pretty good in it. Kyle's going to bring up the horrifying curse of these actors. That's depressing. Yeah. But um, I mean, that's a well-known like Hollywood fact: the curse of poltergeist. At least for the two, women. a lot of the kids did not have great uh, lives after two of the three kids had a fucking horrible life. So. To also touch on the controversy of this film, if so, if somehow you've not heard before, the kind of story stemming from this is that, like, actually Spielberg ghost directed this entire movie. Like, it's actually him who directed the entire movie. You know, he's credited writer. He's the producer. We'll get into specific things later on. But I think you're right in saying that there's two distinct tones that are at odds with one another, which is the Toby Hooper sensibility of, like, shock and gruesomeness yeah. and gore and stuff like that which there are some i think effective things that happen in this with like skeletons and like the drooling ghosts and some of that cg and special effects work is i think quite well done but there's also like that sensibility of spielberg the spielberg shots that happen in this but there is this yeah fight between i think these two forces which is why i think my my gut instinct is this which seems to be supported by what most people say, Anecdotes. which is Toby Hooper was the director, but Spielberg had a good hand of like, put the camera there, put it over here. So that's why it doesn't quite feel like Toby Hooper is behind the camera every single time. But getting back to why I think this movie is fine. Like I, I don't I, like you. It's, it's not like I hate this movie, but as something that is fairly beloved amongst a good subset of people and even said to be like one of the scariest movies of all time some people will put it on their list of scariest movies of all time i am sure that if i had seen this when i was a kid like if i was three or four years old and i went and saw poltergeist i'd be terrified out of my mind as an adult basically watching this the first time all i kept hitting up against was that there was just an inconsistency of that tone, but also just an inconsistency of what it is trying to communicate. We had such a great conversation last week about the thing, and we can quibble a little bit about like what we think it's trying to say, maybe. But it's still very effective. Like we're, we're using paranoia. There's this alien. You don't know who's who. And it kind of just keeps going and going and going for you. Here, it's like, okay, so I get why, get why this house is being haunted we eventually see that it's built over top of a, an old cemetery but the, the the family doesn't know that number one which is which could add to the terror because they're coming into a situation they don't know but the uh developer the never nothing bad happens to him i don't understand why tv is such a big thing because they have nothing to say about like the dangers of tv i actually thought that that's what this movie was actually going to be the point of it kind of like how we saw in halloween 3 which is it's very much the text in that movie is like be aware of what is being shown to you on tv and in commercials and mass communication and so what you're left with is that the first half i was actually kind of in to an extent like okay i mean the family they're kind of going about their day and then when the actual haunting starts to happen outside of uh whatever that character's name is the person who comes and tries to like clean the house oh yeah who i do love i love that character a lot i thought she was great exorcist is she in beetlejuice no. she wasn't called an exorcist though she was called something else yeah. some like psionic something or other then you have to the whole movie has to then hinge on like these scares and stuff that are going on and i don't know it kind of loses me at that point because it's like it's fine but it's not like the scariest stuff that i've ever seen in my entire life it's uh does some jump scares i guess effectively as much time as we spend with the family i also don't really know a whole lot about them what they want, what they're trying to accomplish. And I think the biggest thing that you're actually pointing towards, if my child, I might, I guess I don't have a child, so I'll, I'll defer to you, but I'll even just say like tangentially, if like my niece or nephew was sucked into a hell dimension, I would have some sort of reaction to the fact that that just happened. And it doesn't seem like there's ever any lasting effects or trauma or anything that happens in this movie. So then the characters feel like, well, what, who are you? What is going on? It just feels like we're just hanging these things on not real people. I don't know. I have a, I actually have a deep problem with just at the script level of how this movie works together, I think, more than anything. So there's some stuff I like individually, but as a whole, I was actually kind of disappointed by this movie, to be honest. Yeah, I think the mother character is the weakest. I mean, the actress is fine. She's good in it. But yeah. the idea you have this pot-smoking mom who doesn't seem to fit into this family system and then when the ghost her daughter she's watching her daughter talk 
to a TV and then shit's floating in her house and she thinks it's cool and fun and check out yeah, this that, yeah, you're just like why what what is what is this yeah there has to be a little bit more explanation of why she thinks that fun like is there something the <laughs> about this some backstory thing like she's a, an amateur ghost enthusiast right. or something that was like okay I, i'm on the board but she doesn't really seem to be all that terrified for any of her kids no. like she's hit on like her teenage daughter is hit on by those workers outside oh those men will be men yeah, like it's like this is so up. weird I so weird so i think the problem with that i mean if she's not a mom if she's just like let's say it's a young couple in this house and the story is the same thing and it's not going to be a child sucked in i don't think it would strike me as much but you know the point i think from a parental uh, stress is that we're supposed to feel a great deal of empathy with this woman because she's lost her daughter to a ghost but when your mom character is such an idiot you know even though we're scared that this girl will never come back. It's also hard to kind of like give a shit. I don't know if that sounds mm -hmm. terrible, but you know, I, people are good in it. I, I don't know. The, the dad coach reacts reasonably confidently mm -hmm. to every situation. If it wasn't his daughter, you know, that guy would have fucking moved out that same day. He was trying to, frankly, as soon yeah, as the char chair was moving around. But even in the uh, second finale, you know, after the girl mm -hmm. comes out, this woman's taking a fucking bath and a nap in a house where they've kidnapped her daughter <laughs> just mm -hmm, chilling mm -hmm. you know of course she's like that's when i'd be going to the motel yeah. like absolutely 100 <laughs> percent. you know they gotta throw in 10 more minutes of the uh second climax and you just, i don't know just it lost me uh several steps along the way my goal is to always reach second climax there are parts of this did you get a ghostbusters vibe from this yes right? well a ghostbusters vibe i mean this is also one of the most 80s films ever yeah, 80s. Right. Like, look at that kid's bedroom. Like, that is an 80s bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> Slinging merch for his buddy George Lucas, the whole movie. Yeah. Well, sure. But there's even like, uh, there's like a light bright in the yeah. background. And there's like a... Clown doll. Why did anyone ever have clown dolls? Yeah, doesn't make sense. But um, there's a board game of Clue that very, was very 80s. Like, there was a big craze I found for, for a little while was the Clue board game. Clue is a great game. So there's... Yeah, there's, there's, there's that that's going on where this deserves like the biggest comparison point is to E.T. Yes, another Spielberg movie. But in that movie, the care and attention that's placed on the characters, specifically through the eyes of Elliot, finding this alien and then going on that journey, I feel like could have been brought over here yeah. to an extent. And again, I mean, this is the fighting of tone. If Spielberg actually did direct this and had an even firmer hand, I think they would have. I think that that's how he would have anchored this movie, which is why I do think Toby Hooper probably had a lot more creative control than people give him credit for, because I don't think he cares. No. He's just like, I just want to show like the weird, gross things. Yep. Like, that's what I'm interested in showing in this movie. So all I need is an excuse of a family who's getting haunted. The unfortunate part for me then, you know, 40 years later is like, yeah, but I don't, I don't really like don't love or care about any of these people mm -hmm. to an extent that they do of Elliot and E.T. Or even the some of the paper thin people in The Thing. I mean, The Thing mm -hmm. is, just to talk about a movie we just talked about, is a movie that wants also to lean into the grotesque and special effects sure. and, and brutal kills. But it has a strong story underneath it, even though we mm -hmm. can't explain why. A handsome alcoholic pilot would, you know, r rule the roosts or whatever the right uh, phrase is. This one's just like whenever that Hooper sensibility, and I'm just presuming this having read so the synopsis of his most famous film. Like this guy, the scientist takes a steak, a random steak out of a package, just laying in a fridge. I don't know. Oh, puts yeah. it on the counter. It puts it on the counter. And then worms come out and you're just like, this does not have anything to do with a poltergeist. Yeah, Sam Raimi stuff, right? They wanted something to, to ooze and look disgusting. Yeah, but even, I would even argue, but Sam Raimi is interesting characters. No, he really no, is. what I mean is like uh, that visceral mm -hmm. zombie sort of like, he loves these uh, special, the practical special effects where things are just like coming like, out of stuff. But that's not what a poltergeist is. I feel bad bagging on, on him too much, but like it is true. It's like, I think so much of the problems would be solved in this if i thought that if any of the characters acted like real people even the <laughs> girl know, like, is like I, a robot i mean I, yeah like I, like I get that it's haunting and like there's a fantasy element to this but i always feel like you need to anchor the people in some sort of reality if we go and look at aliens as an example I never think it's like, well, Ripley's acting really weird in this scene. No, she's acting like a real person yeah. being scared that an alien is chasing yeah, her. Yeah, she's scared to death. She's not going to like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just leave this uncooked steak out on the counter <laughs> for some throw reason. It on like, a, not even on a plate. Yeah. While I'm eating. What was he eating? I don't even know. It's disgusting. You, you would yell at your kid if he just like put a steak <laughs> on the counter. 
and walked away from it. Well, this is why I hated the trees so much and I forgot about the TVs. It is so incongruous with the idea of a poltergeist. You know, when it starts and things are flying or being pressed mm. against a wall, you know, you're like, oh yeah, that's creepy. That's, there's something very fucking occult about it. The chairs being arranged in a reverse pyramid. You're like, oh, that's really neat. That's a very witchcrafty thing. And then they have this demon tree that reaches and tries to eat a boy. And you're like, Why, where did that come from? What is the point of that? It's, that's like the steak part. I think this is the Tom Hooper. I mean, I'm going to be an ass and just attribute it to him. By the way, it's Toby Hooper. Toby Tom Hooper is a very different director. Whatever. Uh, Toby Hooper. This idea of, uh, yeah, gross for gross sake. It really just, it was very awkward to watch. But that being said, it's not like I only like the parts that I presume Steven Spielberg shot. I mean, it's not, you know, it moves forward. We've watched a lot worse movies. It's just. Well, that's the thing. It's like, even, I mean, ultra negative here, but I was kind of interested the entire way. So I was like, I kind of want to know how this all like. No, I don't know why. Wraps up. And like I said, when, um, what's her name? I'm going to get her actual name here the actress is zelda something zelda rubenstein as tangina mm -hmm. apparently i want an action figure of her so badly i thought she was fucking She's great, great in this, yeah. <laughs> I loved, when she enters the, the the movie it's basically it just changes again it's like oh and it's like her show now for for a little bit mm -hmm. And I thought it was lovely. So yeah, that the interchange in the script of how she's like trying to guide them to do the right things. I thought it was great. It was like mm -hmm. making them kind of like how you would coach someone to do something they didn't want to do, uh, knowing mm -hmm. that you have to change at the end. So it sounds like you're contradicting yourself. It's like a mm -hmm. test of your resolve, right? So I thought that yeah. whole sequence was fantastic. Plus, we should point out too, there is some funny scenes that happen in this. I think her even interchange about her being like, I'm going to go through there oh, and yeah. like all this type of stuff. And it's like, but we don't know what's on the other side. She's like, you're right, right you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I don't need to go through this then. There's fun stuff like that. Like I said, the, there's some inventiveness with some of the special effects. Although I will say, unlike the thing, I thought the seams could really be seen in this movie, which was interesting, especially like the floating stuff that they grab. It's like, ooh, that is very early CGI that is not holding up it's for tough me. tough one though. I mean, yeah. having a wet monster come out of a body is a little different than trying to make energy appear on a screen. So the budget's there. I mean, it's comparable to whether you think Raiders of the Lost Ark holds up or any of those. Even Star Wars, like some of the more force related yeah. special effects are very similar. So I didn't get upset at that but yeah it's it's an interesting movie it's it's interesting it's beloved so much I, th I think it's one of those things it's that nostalgia thing again like i understand why people like this movie like i think there's enough to latch on there i kind of like question like but like scariest movie of all time mm -hmm. like one of the best horror movies of all time that's where i'm like i don't know like i don't i think there's far better examples of this it may be one of the first to do some things but i think it's there's been better examples of that going forward like the real scariest movie of all time Wally, -E, nice robots are creepy. I do like Craig T. Nelson doing push-ups on the bed and then reading the biography of Ronald <laughs> Reagan. <laughs> Again, it's like the most 80s film I could possibly yeah. imagine. I do like to, you know, how they build up to it being built on top of a grave. I was wondering why they even brought in the boss, right? And mm -hmm. it's, it's just kind of like a cheap way to add the story underneath it because he doesn't play a factor like maybe they could have introduced him earlier right so that we get a build-up to that but I, I like all the pieces are there i think that's the the frustrating part is like i think that there's these elements that again i know it's beloved i know people like it already but would have made it even better of an experience because i love the reveal of when they're talking and then it shows that they're talking about a, a, a cemetery yeah I thought that reveal was actually really well done. And I feel like the natural the natural um, impulse would be like, okay, shady developer. I know it's like the, not the most original plot in the world, but like shady developer who didn't move the bodies. That's why they're being haunted. But then should probably get a comeuppance at the very end mm -hmm. of it. I know that's me wanting like the moral high ground, but it just feels like that's what should be earned is like when the house gets sucked in on itself that the developer goes with it or something like that. It depends on how they were thinking about leveraging that character, which it feels like a shoehorn. I don't know mm -hmm. how you build a script like this, like how much they would need to know when and where they reveal the true plot. So, you know, I, I would presume the con conceptualization of this film is like, what if we had a house that was secretly built on, uh, built on a secret grave and, and the ghosts come out? And also apparently only one house because yeah. none of the other Which houses doesn't are make haunted. a lot of sense either. And then uh, they were like, well, how do we discover it? I think that's where someone's like, it's like a shoehorn feeling. Well, 
the boss would have known. Let's put him in the movie because uh, it would have been more valuable. Yeah, if we had set him up a little bit earlier, so that maybe there's tension between Coach and his boss. And then you know, if his boss, if we're led to believe that the real estate developer intentionally did it because it's cheaper, they don't really. It's ex- it's implicit, but they don't really even. I think it's plied. Yeah, yeah. Then at least we could have a bad guy, right? But we don't really yeah. get a bad guy out of this either. Other than the no. beast or the de- the demon or whatever they call it, which I'm sh- assuming again have never watched the sequels, probably becomes more prominent in probably. the sequels. I'm guessing. I don't know. And that's the other thing. Like the the Zelda brings up this really neat idea of like oh the lost souls and they're just walking around waiting for their time, right? Like that's some classic yeah. spiritual realm stuff. But then how this beast, yeah, I can't remember its name, is like corrupting them and holding them back and using this girl as some kind of medium. That's also not follow through. <laughs> It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, they used a rope and the girl came out, you know, looking like a cadaver and everybody's awake and I'm yeah. going to go take a bath and take a nap and uh, we're good. <laughs> I will say just to give credit to your point that we started this podcast off with where you mentioned like sometimes you have different impressions and um, opinions the second, third, fourth time you watch a movie. I came across so many breakdowns of like the amazing like Easter eggs and like setups and payoffs that happen in Poltergeist. And this is from people that have to have seen this a bunch of times because like this small thing in the corner is actually referenced again later on in the movie, Mm -hmm. which then becomes important here. I'm like, great. But again, as a first time viewer, I'm not seeing any of that stuff. So I don't get that like, I guess, um, richness to the text, let's just put it that way, of all the things apparently that the set designers, and I'm assuming Hooper and Spielberg had a hand of like just placing things in that do pay off later on into the story. I never click on the YouTube links that are talking about mm. Easter eggs in Marvel films. I just feel like, I think that's fun for young people, meaning like sure. when we were younger and you know all that Disney animation stuff and people were putting like sex innuendo in in the f- frames in the film and we saw them fight club you know and I'm like 15 and someone shows me a picture that in the Lion King he sits and then the the pollen spells sex for like half you know you're like oh yeah that's really cool that's really funny yeah. now I just don't like, I don't care but I'm, I'm kind of the same way which is like it doesn't make me like the movie anymore or less like okay sure Still great. A movie, yeah. <laughs> like Ant-Man's helmet is shown for half a second right. in the background over here I'm like okay so like but that doesn't make me like the movie anymore no. like who cares we've added so many easter eggs to this podcast that nobody has picked up on so let's do some backstory here Dave this movie opened up on June 4th 1982 currently it is rated 3 6 on Letterboxd, has a 7.3 on IMDb, 79 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 87% from 71 critics and 79% from 100,000 plus users. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray and currently available to purchase or rent on iTunes or YouTube. Its budget is $10.7 million. Let me just again remind you that it is less than Yes, Georgia. <laughs> yeah, we haven't, we haven't shit-talked Yes, Georgia in a while. <laughs> It would make at the box office in 1982 $121.7 million, which if adjusted for inflation would be like a movie making $374 million today. It was the eighth highest grossing movie in North America in 1982. So Spielberg had a good summer in 1982. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Not just 82. He he basically has a good summer every three years. Its plot description is... A family's home is haunted by a host of demonic ghosts. Pretty short and succinct, yep. to the point. Wait, can a ghost be not demonic? It's a good question. I suppose you could. Mm. Is the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man demonic? Yes. It has teeth. Yeah. It's, right? It becomes is very sinister at the end. Slimer, I guess Slimer has teeth too. Yeah. Uh, How would the ghost that gives Dan Aykroyd a blowjob? <laughs> Does that one have teeth? Casper, I guess. Right? Casper. Casper. He's a friendly ghost. Yeah, That's right. Friendly. Right there. It's right in the name. All right. Let's play the game everyone loves each and every week called Guess, Guess That, that, that Tag. This is, of course, when I put on my handsome blazer, I get my long microphone that Bob Barker used to use. And we all love movie posters, right? We go into the movie theater, see the row of movie posters in front of us. And maybe. Do you remember Tribute Magazine? I'd always cut out I do the remember Tribute Magazine. Yeah, I think that's a Canadian thing. But David, maybe you have gotten a ticket to Ticket to Paradise and are like, I am in it to what? win it. I want to see a love story between George Clooney and Julia Roberts again <laughs> because it's, I want to feel like it's 1995. I was like, is that a board game? Not Notting Hill Part 2? On the poster. Runaway Bright again. There's a little... Little line, but it's there to entice you to go and see the movie. So, Dave, what what we're doing here today is that we need three options. One of these is the tagline. 
that appeared on the poster to Poltergeist in 1982. Two of them are completely made up by me. So, is it they just moved in and now they need to get out? Is it they're jamming the frequency? Or is it they're here? They're here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Sarah ruined this straight last week. She told you what it was. No, I don't remember that. But I just, I mean, as soon as the girl says that, I'm like, that is the most iconic, right? Scene. I, I don't mm. know. I've, I've seen that. Iconic line. And I haven't seen this movie. And as soon as you started this bit, I was like, it's going to be there here. Wouldn't it have been crazy, though, if it was like they're jamming the frequency? I'm like, who? <laughs> why? <laughs> this stars Craig T. Nelson as Steve Freeling, Joe Beth Williams as Diane Freeling, Heather O'Rourke as Carol Ann Freeling, and Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina. Do you just want to get into very quickly the terrible fates of the two young actors? Oh, man. Well, the teenage... We don't have to get like super into it. Yeah, but... the t- what's the teenage girl? She is the most tragic. That's so fucking yeah. weird. Uh, so she was strangled to death by her boyfriend in 1982. Right. And during the trial, so it's tragic enough that she died and was murdered, which is fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. In the trial, the judge, because he's a piece of shit, refused to take testimony from this guy's ex-girlfriends who had all been abused and nearly killed right. by this guy. And so he got voluntary manslaughter and sentenced six years. And he served three. And he was out. Hmm. He changed his name, but her father, of course, wouldn't let it go. Chased this fucker down across the country. And they set up protest signs, kept naming him. And basically has been trying up to pretty recently to make this person pay for this disgusting mm-hmm. crime. So that's scary. And then the young girl, Jesus. Heather O'Rourke. She yeah. did two Who sequels. Who does appear in the next two sequels. Yes. Yeah. But then, is it 1989? Like, she's not that old. She suddenly dies of sepsis. It turns out she had this uh, undiagnosed disease. I don't remember what it's called. And she started swelling and having, like, bowel trouble. Mm. By the time they got her in the hospital, she, like, she died. There's, like, little asterisks where they're questioning how they didn't know and whether this is sudden, you know, something sudden. So, the idea of a mm. curse is there because it's just really tragic. I don't know if mm. either of them would have had full meaningful careers so it's not so much about projecting yeah, the future but well cinematography is by matthew f leonetti his top four on imdb are star trek insurrection from 1998 mm-hmm. the butterfly effect from 2004 star trek first contact from 1996 and strange days from 1995 strange days is a good movie butterfly effect that's ashton kutcher isn't it ashton kutcher <laughs> You know, so I watched this movie called Vengeance, which I feel like I'm one of the only, the few people who actually like the movie. Uh No. It's a bad title, to be honest with you. It's a bad title. It's not about Vengeance? It it is, (laughs) but like, I think it sets you up for things like a Taken type of movie, and that's not what the movie is at all. It's written and directed by B.J. Novak. Oh, weird. From The Office and stuff. Oh, this is uh, fairly recent. This is Ashton Kutcher's comeback, because he was sick or something, right? I I was only bringing it up. Okay. It's the first and only time where I've thought that Ashton Kutcher acted well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't like him in the, that 70s show. I didn't like him in The Butterfly Effect. I haven't liked him in any movie I've ever seen him. I'm like, no, you're not doing it for me. I put on one episode of that Netflix show he got because people mm-hmm. were raving about it. And I had to turn it off. my parents love. Like two yeah. minutes. I was just, no, this is awful. And I just turned it off. That would be my reality show that I would pitch is how long can Dave last? And you just bet. <laughs> To the second, like, how long is Dave going to last before he shuts this off? Twitch or something where people will shout out shitty movies and uh, TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. And then you bet on it. And then if you're the closest or you hit it dead on, you get a certain amount of Bitcoin. I don't know. So, Ethereum. Written by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grace, and Mark Victor, based on a story by Steven Spielberg, directed by Toby Hooper. This is where we'll get into kind of the uh, controversy here, but just to set the stage here, Michael Grace and Mark Victor were this writing team that were coming off of the film Death Hunt. Starring Charles Bronson? or It stars our good friend Charles <laughs> Bronson, oh, oh, it does. yes. 100% oh, I was just does. making a joke, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you, who do you think would star in a movie <laughs> called Death Hunt? And I knew you were going to get it in one. Uh, it also co-starred Lee Marvin. So, what? of course. Lee Marvin must have... 19- oh, no. This is not 82. So, I mean, he was still a bit mm-hmm. old, but okay. So, in 81, Charles Bronson, Lee Marvin, Death Hunt. Uh, it was that and this other unproduced script that they wrote that catch the eye of Steven Spielberg. And he asked them to come and work for him. Initially, what he wanted them to come and help adapt was this older movie, which would eventually become his like forgotten movie from the early... 90s called always oh so robin williams 
No, it is uh, Richard Dreyfus. Oh, Richard Dreyfus, right, right. No one has ever seen that movie, and no one remembers that movie, but that's what that movie turns into. But during this meeting, Spielberg lets slip that he had, he also has this idea for a ghost movie, but the two writers are like way more interested and be like, uh, actually, we want to be involved in that idea. He had initially hired this different writer, but that writer drops out, so he brings Grace and Victor in to kind of take over the job. I don't know if you all remember this from our episode on E.T., but... Spielberg was contractually prevented from directing any other film while working on E.T. It was written into the contract while he worked on that movie. He could not direct another movie. Uh, there was this whole thing with Columbian Universal. You can go back to our episode on E.T. if you want to get into that whole backstory. But just remember, there is this clause. He's not allowed to direct anything or even prep for another film while he is working on E.T. So they hire Toby Hooper to come aboard to direct this movie. He was one of the early choices to adapt in Night Skies, which eventually turned into E.T. He was also this first choice to direct The Thing, which we talked about last week. And both of those projects kind of falter. So this is the project that he eventually lands on. They both went to competent directors? Maybe. This is where we get into the controversy of who actually directed this movie. So Toby Hooper, of course, is credited as the sole director. But here are some other truths just to layer onto this. Spielberg was on the set almost every single day. That is not in dispute. You can you can attribute that to the fact that he was producer and co-writer. Toby Hooper, as I mentioned at the very beginning, was uh, not that in-your-face style of director. He was a very quiet and reserved man. And more than one actor and, and crew members said that if he was asked a question and didn't have like an immediate solution or answer. It was Spielberg who stepped in and answered the question. So that those are things that are not in dispute. I should also say too that both Hooper and Spielberg were responsible for doing the storyboards. All that stuff, that is not what's in dispute. What is in dispute then is how much involvement Spielberg actually has in, in this. A couple of the crew people and one of the actors has stated plainly that they think Spielberg was the actual director of this movie. Most of the controversy stems from this interview Spielberg gave at the time in 1982, which came across, at least in print, as if he was saying that he was the actual director of this movie. This whole thing actually eventually goes into arbitration at the insistence of the Directors Guild. And Hooper actually did end up uh, being paid $15,000 more because it was found that the MGM had not adequately promoted Hooper as being the director of the movie. On its release day in 1982, Spielberg releases an open letter that is published in The Hollywood Reporter. And he writes, Regrettably, some of the press has misunderstood the rather unique creative relationship which you and I shared throughout the making of Poltergeist. He was writing to Toby Hooper, but published it in The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, I enjoyed your openness in allowing me, as a writer and a producer, a wide berth for creative involvement, just as I know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct Poltergeist so wonderfully. Through the screenplay, you accepted a vision of this very intense movie from the start. And as a director, you delivered the goods. You performed responsibly and professionally throughout. And I wish you a great success on your next project. So that fans the flames a little bit there too. So just to get into it, like what is your interpretation of this, Dave? Do you think that Spielberg, yeah, he was totally 100% the director? Or do you no. think it's a combination of both? No, I, well, my visual feeling was that there are a couple parts where I felt like maybe he even reshot some of the scenes mm. just because the tone flips so much to mirror E.T., for example, some of the backlighting, yeah. uh, some of the wide track shots of the neighborhood with the kids on the bikes and using the low camera yeah. to follow the, the cars. Every and, one of those kids on bike scenes is like, that's such a Spielberg yeah. shot. <laughs> like, it is such a Spielberg shot. But then anytime we get into the gore or these really supernatural events, it is just, it's so, it's like, yeah, it's like cutting to a different film. So I feel like either uh, there were larger reshoots for mood that Steven Spielberg did after, or that when to uh, Toby Hooper was uncomfortable or felt a little at odds with some of the more um, tepid scenes, that he might mm -hmm. defer and ask advice. Mm -hmm. And Steven Spielberg might be like, well, if you use this lens and my lighting guy's got this trick, and then maybe he's just influencing the look and feel of the film that's how it feels like to me. This entire, that's entirely my feeling here as well. I think this is probably just too many cooks in the kitchen. Spielberg probably should have just stayed off of the set completely, to be honest. Uh, I think where we get into issues is like, this is 1982 Spielberg. Like he is very much a name at this point. And even though Toby Hooper, of course, had made Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this is one of his first like big budget Hollywood productions. 
So, of course, even I would probably be like, I don't know, Stephen, what do you think? And Steven's, yeah. of course, Spielberg's, of course, going to be like, do this, this, and this. Of course, I've done this a million times. I know what to do. If he had just been given his own free reign, this movie probably would have looked a lot differently and felt a lot different. Weirdly enough, this is of how much, you know, China and my phone knows about me. On TikTok, there was a Spielberg interview that popped up from the mid-80s, early 90s. I don't know exactly when it was. But that's what he says, like, the biggest thing that you need to be as a director is to know what you want. Just say what you want and have the people do it. As soon as you have, like, this, oh, I don't know, like, maybe I think that this is what you want to do, your production falls apart because people start to have, like, trust, trust in you. Yeah. And I think that's probably what happened here is that Toby was too much deferring to Spielberg. And if he just said, do this, do that, do that, probably would have ran better. And, and, and in my inter- interpretation, Spielberg probably would have backed off if he had seen that happening. But I think he just had to jump in because someone was not making the decision. Yeah, we don't know anything about yeah, who Steven Spielberg is, is. And we've joked like Tom Hanks and uh, Ron Howard, these guys with these pristine Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, veneers that there's got to be something off underneath for them to have this kind of longevity, right? Sure. Could Steven Spielberg be such an overwhelming and overbearing presence uh, to do something like that? Uh, Probably. Also, you know, when I think about someone like Toby Hooper coming from the low-budget horror film, to stand in a lot with a $16 million budget and have at your disposal probably like 2,000 employees and the -the state-of-the-art everything, it's not even a matter of like having a small personality. When you couldn't get by enough film and had like five people working on your crew. Like it's just a totally different experience. If I, you know, for my work, like we make short YouTube videos, but if someone like handed me a red camera and and had like (laughs) a a sound crew of 15 guys and, you know, all these like remote mics, like, okay, let's go uh, medium budget on this video you guys are doing. I, I just be like, I don't even know how to press record. Right. I've never seen this machine before. Spielberg, what do you think? Kids with bikes. We need kids with bikes right now. Even if it's not like, what do you think we should do? It could be like, you know, how do you use this crane? And then Spielberg's going to have a way that he uses a crane, right? Yeah. And it's going to be different than the way George Lucas uses it or Martin Scorsese or whatever. But if he's just getting that one direction, then essentially, you know, you're doing it in the style of X person. So that's the feeling I got from it. It was like the struggle between two aesthetic visions you can do paranormal but having a tree eater person or having uh, a raw steak on a counter for no reason (laughs) right it's like they stand out all of a sudden you're like that's pretty cheap by the way you do know that on our youtube video there's gonna be a comment i put my raw steak on the counter all the time what are you talking about (laughs) i always eat raw steak this would get released one week after et which is why the press called 1982 the summer of spielberg oh wow um Positively reviewed, made a ton of money, was nominated for three Academy Awards. Doesn't that um, also like all three of them. counter the suspicion that Spielberg's in charge of this? Because why would he take a chance of cannibalizing his own film? It would get two sequels and a remake came out in 2015. So it's had a long longevity. There here is iconic. Like even on, I think on the AFI top 100 quotes of all time, it shows up <laughs> at a certain position. So I mean, cultural impact. I know it. I've never seen this movie mm-hmm. before. I don't know if it's yeah. like getting parodied on SNL or something, but I, oh, I know. Uh, yes. Talking about the comedy bit, I love the flipping between the game and Mr. Rogers. I thought that was great. Yes. Really well done. Oh, uh, Kyle, uh, speaking of uh, cleanliness, this house is so fucking dirty. This guy runs <laughs> in with the leaking beer. Nobody gives a shit. Like there's beer everywhere. It's spraying on them when they do the panning shot. <laughs> Then they do the close-up over the shoulder to see the TV, and there's fucking beer spraying. I think that's the worst part. It is spraying so much. It is spraying so much when he runs in. It's like that house would just reek oh, of beer. It's all car. It's eighties. It's all carpet, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. Oh, but that part with the channel thing was hilarious. To be honest with you, growing up on the farm and stuff. I always kind of respect a movie that shows a house as being dirty because like, yeah, my house got a bit dirty growing up all the time anyways. Uh, I think I just, I don't understand football culture. So this idea that your buddy runs in with like a six pack pouring beer all over. It's over the top. (laughs) And the fact that you would murder those kids for having like made them fall over. This movie definitely needed more child murder. Do you remember when car keys to like put into the ignition yes. just look like regular keys yeah. so annoying <laughs> like, so like look that was so, so glaring like oh yeah there was a time where it just looked like a key it didn't have like the big fob thing on it this is probably why they invented push start motors uh mm-hmm. engines because they're just like i've watched way too many horror films mm-hmm. and i do not want to have to find the right key when someone's trying to kill me i just want to push a button 
What do you think uh, the resale of that lot's going to be? Do you think they're going to get anything out of this? If it's in Calgary, easily a million bucks. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has said that we should wrap things up here. So let's get into some critics' choice here, first and foremost. So Roger Ebert gave this three stars out of four, and he wrote in part... Hooper and Spielberg hold our interest by observing the everyday rituals of this family so closely that, since the family seems real, the weird events take on a certain credibility by association. That's during the first hour of the movie. Then, all hell breaks loose, and the movie begins to operate on the same plane as Alien or Altered States, as a shocking special effects sound and light show. A closet seems to exist in another dimension, the swimming pool is filled with grasping, despairing forms of the undead, the search for the missing little girl involves a professional psionics expert, and a lady dwarf who specializes in cleaning haunted houses. Nobody ever does decide whether a poltergeist really is involved in the events in the house, or who the poltergeist may be. But if that doesn't prevent them from naming the movie Poltergeist, I guess it shouldn't keep us from enjoying it. That is what he wrote. The backhand. Nice. I will say this. <laughs> I, I know we get a little bit of flack for like trying to rewrite movies sometimes. But it always... I kind of wanted to know more about the Poltergeist. Right. I wanted to know more yeah, about like, the demon. who are these people. If, yeah. if, they're, if, they're, if it's a demon, fine. Let's learn more about the demon. I want to know more about Zool is what I'm trying to say. Or if it's like uh, these are the hauntings of the, the move people from the cemetery. Uh, let's learn some backstory from these people in the cemetery then. I don't know. It just seems like there's a missed opportunity here to build out the lore a bit of this movie. When you have this woman single out one demon as leading mm-hmm. the pack astray, we need to find out why. It's not good enough that they're standing on their burial ground. You feel like it has to be like a serial killer or some right. witch or some somebody that was evil in their life. I'm ready for the emails of like, actually at the 20 minute mark in, um, in Poltergeist 3, they explain everything. Yeah. Like, or great. like you missed the Easter egg where as they're panning across the, the cemetery, there's actually a description of this person yeah. if you go on super slow-mo. Actually, you know, what the, you know what the biggest one of that is? Is that... Uh, sort of easter egg sort of thing that most people miss like i see this come up every christmas of people like discovering it quote unquote for the first time in home alone the movie home alone from 1990 with macaulay culkin the whole setup right is that they actually count the kids but then they're like well how would they not realize it when they scanned all their tickets because mm-hmm. they would the be airport. one ticket short so it's like it's a plot hole but it's not there's a very quick shot of when he spills all the coke at the beginning and yeah. they wipe it off you see the tickets go into the trash bin yeah but it is very quick. Like, I can understand why people don't see that. I didn't notice it the first few times until someone pointed it out to me. So it's one of those oh, things, he's probably. like, Kevin. <laughs> you little jerk. <laughs> yeah, that's what he says. Um, Dave, you'll be so excited. Pauline Kale reviewed this movie. Oh, wow. She came out of the cave from yeah. Poltergeist. Um, nice. She was pretty lukewarm on this movie. But basically, if you want to see a writer who can write really well reiterate my point more effectively this is what pauline kale had to say you hear bits of spielberg's voice all through poltergeist but it isn't a song it's more like a whistling in the dark poltergeist doesn't have a structure it has only a situation and a bunch of flapping loose ends spielberg must have had to work much harder on this film than on et because it doesn't tap the sources of magic it's just a dumb concoction and every effect has to stand on its own What's lacking is what E.T. has, the emotional roots of the fantasy and what it means to the children. There is nothing about Diane and Steve and their kids that relates in any way to what happens to them. The parents show their love for Carol Ann, but that was never in doubt. Their courage is tested, but that doesn't seem to have any particular meaning for them or for their kids or any connection to how things turn out. Because Spielberg is a dedicated craftsman and a wit, he can make a much better low-grade adolescent entertainment than most directors. But he isn't really thinking in this film. He's just throwing ideas and effects at us. If he tossed in an earthquake and a batch of giant mutant ants, they'd make as much sense as anything else in Poltergeist. She will not reference toby hooper at all eh? i know this is her being this is the classic pauline kale being mean she heard that spielberg directed like hooper didn't do this just gonna call it spielberg <laughs> i mean i think at this point we can agree that pauline kale has really become curmudgeonly so she's very very uh, she is the dave of critics yeah, i don't know sure. in 71 she, was... she also writes personally like, you can only read the movie for the movie's sake uh, anyone who ever tries to think of anything deeper than what the movie is telling you is wrong no like 71 we watched some interviews and she was still enjoying her life you know there's something about yeah she loved altman she was yeah. like i'm gonna tell you about altman and why altman's great 1982 she's just like fuck everybody you guys are all a bunch of hacks long drag of the cigarette fuck eastwood yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, throw 
throws her cigarette in the person's face. We ask this question every week, Dave, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Tough one. I mean, cultural relevance, I think so. We can still quote mm -hmm. this film for some reason. And there's still a debate on its ownership. So it's in the yeah. movie Zeitgeist, I suspect. For a young horror enthusiast, they would want to watch this film too. So I'm going to say yes, culturally relevant. Does it hold up? Some of the practical effects are fine visually. You know, yeah. the Spielberg-esque makes it feel like a big budget cinema film. But I don't know. I didn't really like it. So I'm kind yeah, of tempted. I'm going to say no and yes. I mean, absolutely. It has its cultural hooks in people. So I have to say yes to the cultural relevance piece. But like, yeah, come Halloween when I do my like... Oh, you've been watching some weird fucking movies. Yes. Yeah, I have. But I'm <laughs> but this is not gonna be on the list. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm sorry to make all the eighties babies yeah. mad. I'm just like, I'm just not gonna be watching yeah. this, probably. We do need to rate this film, but before we do, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. Uh, we never talked about the melting face, by the way, which is pretty disgusting. Melting um, even though you can tell it's a mannequin in most of the shots. But Oh, the dream sequence. Yeah, yeah that was right also very Raiders of the Lost Ark, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, we also release videos up on our YouTube channel, so you can go check those out. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So Dave, let's get to the rating of this movie. Other five what are we going to give poltergeist i'm gonna go with the two 2.5 i'll give it okay i'm about going to two but i'll give it 2.5 it wasn't terrible well i'm gonna give it a kyle 2.5 which means a three <laughs> <laughs> it's fine yeah, it's, fine. it's fine like I, I i don't hate it i don't love it it's kind of right there in the middle i think there's some interesting things yeah. but like it's just messy it's fine yeah I, and not to slag off or whatever toby hooper when it's gross if that was the point of the movie it's fine too right it's just yeah smashing them up to against each other i think the biggest thing is that work. it's the character piece i yeah. want there to be more characters that i care about so that when it does get into that gruesome stuff like i'm really right there with them i'm like oh my god no no i just these people i just cut together the video for swamp thing and that's why we like swamp thing you know, even if it's mm -hmm. not even the script and just one good actor, you just need something to make you care about the victim. Yeah. So that's going to average to 2.75, although we'll be rated 2.5 on our on our master list. There's three films that that ties with Night Shift, The Secret of Nim, and Losing Ground. Where would you put it in relation to those three? Well, I could put it on top of all of them. And I can also put it under losing ground. No, I, I mean, I, I might put it on top of all of them. I, I think we should put it on the top of all of those. I think, again, the cultural relevance piece kicks in yeah. where I think it's just more culturally relevant than any of those three. So enter in our list at the new number 21 position, right above losing ground, right below the dark crystal. Um, all right. So we should take a look at what we are reviewing here next week. Dave, I'm going to push this button. Oh, good. good. Oh, Dave, we're going to. We're going to go into the, the, the computer, an early CG, CGI fest. We're going to see Tron. Discs and bikes. Get a laser disc. We're going to have our uh, light cycle battle and stuff like that. Keep turning so. at 90 degree angles. I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> Did you ever play that arcade game, yeah, by the hard. way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I swear to God that the kitchen didn't used to be here. I don't know why everything seems to be moving and changing shape here for us, Dave. It's so weird. You just hold this rope, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you see that weird uh, vaginal portal? You just jump into that. I've actually never seen a vagina, so I don't know. <laughs> My goal is to always reach second climax.